Welcome. You're listening to The Sanctuary Podcast with Pastor Tullian Chavidjan. If you'd like to learn more about The Sanctuary, visit our website, thesanctuaryjupiter.com. I, um, I talk to people every week whose life is unraveling in one way or another. Every week. Just this week, I, I heard from a husband trying to hold his family together after confessing to an affair. Uh, I heard from a mother whose daughter won't talk to her. A father whose son won't let him see his grandkids. A young guy who just discovered a cancerous tumor. A wife who doesn't want to be married to her husband anymore after 20-something years. A friend facing jail time for a crime committed 15 years ago. An aging widow who is struggling with loneliness. Each and every week I hear from people whose life is unraveling in one way, shape, or form. And all of these conversations this week were a painful reminder that this world is broken, okay, that, that, that suffering is pervasive, that it's inescapable. There's no such thing as a, as a pain-free life. Like many of you, Job, as we've seen over the last nine weeks, has been crushed. He's endured catastrophic loss across the board, Financial, relational, emotional, and physical devastation he's experienced. And to make matters worse, in his great time of need, his wife rebukes him and his friends accuse him. Everyone close to him is making his suffering worse. Rather than shouldering his burden, they are adding to his burden. He's learning the hard way that nothing and no one can be for him what only God can be. It reminds me of that old hymn which says, friends may fail me, foes assail me, he alone can make me whole. He's learning the hard way that nothing and no one can be for him what only God can be. He's undone. He's at the end of himself. And what he'll soon realize is that it's only when we come to the end of ourselves that we come to the beginning of God. Desperation always precedes deliverance in God's economy, always. And as I said last week, the, the root of Job's pain is not the loss of his stuff. He lost everything. He lost his wealth. He lost his health. He lost his children. He lost his wife. He lost everything. But, he, but the root of Job's pain is not the loss of his stuff. It's not the loss of life as he knew it. The root of Job's pain is his perceived loss of God. He feels like God's out to lunch. God's disappeared. He remembers when when life was good, when God was caring and close, and and now God seems so distant and unfeeling, so apathetic, so absent. Job never asks, why have I lost everything? I want my stuff back. That's not what he asks. He essentially asks God, why have you left me? Just like everybody else, you've abandoned me in my time of need. I thought I could trust you to be here when things went south. You've left too. You've abandoned me too. He feels abandoned by God and left alone in his pain, alone in his heartache, alone in this world. He felt abandoned by God. He feels undefended by God. He feels unprotected by God. He feels ignored. He feels forgotten. He feels like God doesn't care about his trouble. He feels like God is not for him but against him. And this is the root of Job's pain. It's almost as if he's saying, I could handle 
just about anything if I knew you were here with me, but you seem to have left the building. Why have you left? Why have you disappeared too? And so from chapters 3 through 31, Job and his friends try to answer the question, why has God left Job? And there's this dialogue that ensues between Job and his three friends about why God seems to have left Job. And Job's friends all say in their own way that Job is suffering because he's being punished and that the only way for the pain to stop and for God to come back is for him him to get himself right and for him to clean himself up. That's their solution. They offer this moralistic diagnosis. Well, the reason that you're suffering is because you're being punished. You've clearly done something wrong. But there's a, there's, a, there's a way you can fix this problem. There's a solution here, Job, but it depends on you. You have to make yourself right and get yourself clean. Then and only then will God come back to you. Then and only then will the pain dissipate. Job couldn't understand what was happening to him or why it was happening to him, and so he demands an explanation. And after going back and forth with his friends for many chapters, he knew that his friends' answers were wrong. He knew that he wasn't suffering because he had done something bad. He knew that he wasn't being punished. He knew his friends' answers were wrong, so he insisted on a right answer from God, demanded a right answer from God. For six chapters, Job gives his opinions on God. He describes God, he evaluates God, and he challenges God to explain himself. He expresses frustration with God and and how God does things. He accuses God of injustice. He confronts God, he questions God, he badgers God for answers. And during this entire time, God simply stays silent. He listens to this conversation that's happening between Job and his friends, and he's listening to all of Job's questions, and God remains silent during this time. He's quiet. And I said last week that God's silence is a mercy to Job. It gives Job the space and the freedom to express the way he's actually feeling. God's okay with that. I've said that week in and week out. God's okay with that. He's okay with you being honest with him, with you expressing yourself truthfully and honestly to him. If you're frustrated with him, if you're concerned, if you're troubled and you feel like God's ignoring you, it's okay to express that, to share that. And God giving Job and his friends the space to talk this out as wrong-headed as their conversations were, for God to give Job and his friends the space to talk this out and to express themselves is, is a comfort to me. It, it gives me a lot of freedom to know that I can go to God with how I really feel, that I don't have to clean myself up and become super spiritual and strengthen my own faith before I am worthy to go into the presence of God and express myself piously. That's not the way God works. God wants us to come to him needy, desperate, frustrated, confused, angry, sad, whatever you're feeling. Um, And through all of this, through all of this, you know, God stays, in a sense, irritatingly silent, irritating to Job and his friends. You know, I mean, Job's just for six chapters, I said, he's just, he's badgering God, he's questioning God, he's confronting God, he's, he's accusing God, he's demanding that God give an explanation for why uh, these things are happening to him, um, and God stays irritatingly silent until he speaks. We are 
37 chapters into the book before God finally clears his throat to speak. And in chapter 38, which may be one of my all-time favorite chapters in the Bible, uh, it begins with these words. Then the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind. Isn't that what suffering feels like? Isn't that what pain, living life as a broken person in a broken world with other broken people? That's what it feels like, like a whirlwind, a a topsy-turvy experience where things are inside out and upside down and you're disoriented and you're discombobulated and you don't fully understand, you don't see things the same way. It feels like you're living your life in an emotional washing machine. And so I love the fact that Job, in all of his turmoil, in the storms that have been ruining his life, it says, then the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind. Notice that too. He's not answering Job from outside of it, standing above it. He's in it. He's in the storm with him. He's there. He hasn't abandoned Job. And this is what he wants Job to know. I haven't abandoned you. I've been here the whole time. Now, I'm going to do something that I don't typically do, but this is just so incredibly powerful. I mean, I don't, I have to admit, I don't, when I'm preparing on Saturdays specifically, I don't find myself um, weeping on a regular basis. I, I am moved deeply, and God moves me, as you can tell by the time Sunday morning rolls around. I'm clearly moved. Um, but at the same time, I'm not always just like a bubbling mess. I was yesterday for a little while, sitting at home by myself, reading through chapter 38 again. And so I want to do something because I told Stacy last night, I was like, what I really should do is stand up, read chapter 38, and sit down. It's that powerful. It preaches itself, and it gives a lot of comfort. So listen to this. I'm going to read this chapter. This is... God answering Job from the whirlwind. Who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorant words? Brace yourself like a man, because now I have some questions for you. In other words, he's saying, Job, you've spent six chapters questioning me, now brace yourself like a man, because now I'm about to question you. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you know so much. Who determined its dimensions and stretched out the surveying line? What supports its foundations? And who laid its cornerstone as the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? Who kept the sea inside its boundaries as it burst from the womb? And as I clothed it with clouds and wrapped it in thick darkness, for I locked it behind barred gates, limiting its shores, I said, this far and no farther will you come. Here your proud waves must stop. Have you, Job, ever commanded the morning to appear and caused the dawn to rise in the east? Have you made the daylight spread to the ends of the earth? Have you explored the springs from which the seas come? Have you explored their depths? Do you realize the extent of the earth? Tell me about it if you know. Job is feeling smaller and smaller and smaller as God shows him just how big he is. Where does light come from? 
And where does darkness go? Can you take each to its home? Do you even know how to get there? But of course you know all this, for you were born before it was all created and you are so experienced. If you ever wondered whether sarcasm was sanctioned by God, make no mistake about it. I've said for years that sarcasm is the Chavijan love language. And that just means that we're deeply spiritual people. We get it straight from God himself. Um, where were we? Oh, yeah, here we go. Where is the path? He keeps going. Where is the path, Job, to the source of light? Where is the home of the east wind? Who created a channel for the torrents of rain? Who laid out the path for the lightning? In other words, who tells the rain where to fall and the lightning where to strike, Job? Do you? Surely you know how all this works. You've got it figured out. You've been able to not only see behind the curtain, but uh, work all of the things that need to be worked. Uh, who makes the rain fall on barren land in a desert where no one lives? Who sends rain to satisfy the parched ground and make the tender grass spring up? Can you, Job, direct the movement of the stars? Can you direct the constellations through the seasons? Do you know the laws of the universe? Can you use them to regulate the earth? Can you shout to the clouds and make it rain? Can you make lightning appear and cause it to strike as you direct? Who gives intuition to the heart and instinct to the mind? Who is wise enough to count all the clouds? Who can tilt the water jars of heaven when the parched ground is dry and the soil has hardened into clods? Can you stalk prey for a lioness and satisfy the young lion's appetites as they lie in their dens or crouch in the thicket? Who provides food for the ravens when their young cry out to God and wander about in hunger? That's just chapter 38. If you read chapter 39, chapter 40, it's more of the same. God just flexing his muscles and showing Job. Now, I will say this. There was a moment yesterday when I was reading this, and it made me feel like God is being insensitive. You know, Job has suffered everything that he has suffered, and he's frustrated, understandably so, and God allows him to express his frustration. And now, you know, and now God finally speaks up and says, Job, you've questioned me, and brace yourself like a man, and I'm going to question you. And he just goes on and asks Job question after question after question after question to show Job that he really doesn't know what he's talking about. And at first I thought, that's not really nice. God's supposed to be nice, and he's not being really nice, okay? Um, and then if you keep reading, and we'll get there in the weeks to come, what you discover is that Job, God showing Job just how big he is proves to be Job's greatest comfort in the end. His greatest comfort. If Job had a fault, it's that he talked too much. And now for the first time, Job is quiet. He is silenced by a storm of questions. Before God spoke, Job couldn't talk enough. After God spoke, Job couldn't talk at all. 
God asks Job a series of questions that expose Job's limitations in knowledge and power. God reminds Job that he and the world he lives in is created and governed by God. God shows that he rules over the earth, the sea, the sun, the light, the snow, the rain, the lightning, the ice, the planets, the clouds, the animals, everything. God leaves nothing unsaid regarding his overarching command of all things. God shows that he is the source of all knowledge, that he is the source of all strength, that he is the source of all reality. These verses remind us that God does not do something because it is just. Something is just because God does it. I said that a few weeks ago, and I think that's a really important, a really important thing to grasp because oftentimes we, we put God on our level and we assume that when it comes to governing the universe that there is this standard of justice and fairness that exists outside of God and God being the good guy that he is uh, investigates what justice and fairness and rightness is and then he does that thing. But the fact of the matter is something is God does not do something because it is just. Something is just because God does it. He sets the standard. These verses remind us that we are limited in every way while God is not limited in any way. He's the, he's the creator. We're the creatures. He's big. We're small. He's, he's omniscient, which means that he knows all past, present, future at the same time. He's omnipotent, which means he's all-powerful. There's nothing more powerful than God. He's omniscient, which means that he is present throughout his universe. He's not bound by space and time. He created space and time. He is everywhere, always. That's God. That, um, that uh, verse in Matthew 7, where Jesus says that there will be many on that last day who say, Lord, Lord, I did this in your name, and I did that in your name, and and God will say, depart from me, I never knew you. Interestingly, uh, it's interesting that the ones that God says, I don't even know you, are the ones who are banking on their doing to make themselves right with God. God, we did this in your name, and we did that in your name. Aren't you impressed? God's like, I didn't. I wanted your heart, not your works. Um, and C.S. Lewis, commenting on that verse, says this about, you know, depart from me, I never knew you. He said, that is being banished from, the, banished from the presence of him who is everywhere and erased from the knowledge of him who knows all. Scary, sobering. But this omniscience, omnipresence, omnipotence, these things that describe God's character, that he knows all past, present, and future at the same time. He's all powerful. He is present throughout his universe. He is everywhere always. He's not bound by space and time. He, he created space and time. Job questioned the way God was running the universe, and God simply answered by reminding Job that it was his universe. In other words, God's answer to Job's why questions was a simple revelation of who he was. Never, never does he say to Job, as I mentioned a few weeks ago, okay, listen, you've had enough. I get it. You're suffering beyond, you know, beyond recognition your friends aren't helping, your wife isn't helping. 
but I'm going to help you, okay? And the way that I'm going to help you is I am going to give you a reason why you're experiencing what you're experiencing. I am going to give you an explanation. And I said a few weeks ago, um, the reason God doesn't do that is because explanations don't ultimately comfort. God ultimately comforts. What Job needs is not an explanation. What he needs, and God knows this, what he needs is God. He needs to know God. He needs to be aware of who God is. He needs to trust God. He needs, he needs to know that God loves him no matter what. I, I, I find a ton of comfort knowing that God is bigger than my problems and my pain. C.S. Lewis said that he used to uh, take a walk in the woods um, you know, once a day to be reminded that uh, God's world is so much bigger than what was simply going on in his mind. He needed to see. C.S. Lewis also at one point said that knowing who God is and what God does and how God operates is like taking a walk along the beach and looking at the ocean. If you look out at the ocean from the beach, you can, as far as the eye can see, all you see is water, but what you actually see is a fraction of what's actually there. And he said that's kind of like our inability to know everything that God does and everything that God is, that God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts and his ways are higher than our ways. And, and so I, I hate problems and I hate pain. I hate not knowing what God is doing and why he's doing it. I just know that I find a ton of comfort knowing that God is bigger than all of it. I don't have answers. I don't have explanations. I don't, I don't know why. And I find myself often questioning God, like Job, expressing frustration with God, questioning God, um, I mean, just sort of shaking my fists from time to time and going, God, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? Whether, it, whether it's because of something he's doing or not doing in my life or something he's doing or not doing in someone else's life that I love. I find myself expressing that, demanding an explanation from God. And yet at the end of the day, God's silence to me in those moments is actually a mercy because he's telling me an explanation is not what you need. That's not what's going to ultimately bring you the deep help that you're looking for. Um, I, I, just, I just know that even though I don't understand what God does and why God does the things that he does, and uh, if, you're at a, if you're in a season of life where you're going, I don't know what he's talking about, everything's good, just wait. There will come a time in your life, I promise you, there will come a time in your life, devout as you may be, strong as you think your faith may be, there will come a time in your life where you will question God. If there hasn't already, I'm shocked. Uh, because this happens to me on a regular basis. And by regular, I mean like daily, okay? So I, I'm, I'm absolutely, absolutely convinced that at some point in your life, if you haven't already, you will question God. You will wonder whether or not God is good. You will, you will question whether or not God is big. You will question whether or not God is in control. You'll question whether or not God cares. You won't understand why God isn't intervening in the way that you want him to intervene. You will question. You will express frustration. If, if you don't, it means that you are unlike any other person who ever lived. And congratulations. Uh, but for us mere mortals... We find ourselves doing this on a regular basis. And, and I, I, um, I don't ever get the answers from God that I'm looking for. Usually, 
It's God's silence letting me, getting, letting me get it out of my system, just sort of get it out. And then in some gentle way like he does with Job, God just shows me who he is in some unique way. So I, I don't, uh, I mean, I, I hate problems, I hate suffering, I hate pain, I hate trouble, I hate not knowing what God is doing and why God's doing it. I just know that I find a ton of comfort knowing that God's bigger than all of it. We will never fully understand why God allows us to suffer in the ways that we do, but it's not answers we ultimately need. It's God. It's not relief that we ultimately need. It's, it's God. It's not a pain-free life that we ultimately need. It's, it's God. That's what we need. Um, Max Lucado, I, I referenced a book that, a new book of his last week, and uh, I was reading his section on Job again yesterday, and, and I like this imagery that he paints here. He says, I'm more a landlubber than a sailor, but I've puttered around in a bass boat enough to know the secret for finding land in a storm. You don't aim at another boat. You certainly don't stare at the waves. You set your eyes on an object unaffected by the wind, a light on the shore, and go straight toward it. You see, the light is unaffected by the storm. I love that because what it conveys is this, that what scares us doesn't scare God. What disorients us doesn't disorient God. What, what rattles us, what baffles us, doesn't rattle and baffle God. Psalm 46.10 says, Be still and know that I am God. I don't know about you, but I find it incredibly difficult to be still, especially in times of trouble, in the crucible of ache. I want to fix something. I want to fix someone. I want to fix myself. I want to do something. I want to clean myself up. I want to clean someone else up. I, I want to solve this problem and solve her issue and solve his issue. And I, I don't want to sit still. I feel like I'm doing nothing. If I just sit still. And so that verse in Psalm 46 has always frustrated me a little bit. It wasn't written for a guy like me. You know, sit still, be still. I haven't been able to be still since I was conceived, okay? Um, be still and know that I am God. A command with a promise. Be still. Cover your mouth. Bend your knees and you will know that I am God. Be still. Be quiet. You know, it's okay to get it out of your system. It's okay, like I said, like I've said, week in and week out, it's okay to just vomit on God. Not on me, necessarily, but on God, okay? It's okay to vomit. It's okay to, to be honest, to be truthful. It's okay to express yourself transparently. It's okay to be vulnerable. It's okay to cuss and spit. God can handle that stuff. And if you've never cussed and spit in a crucible of ache, then you've, you've been deceiving yourself into thinking you're better than you are. 
it's okay. And yet at the same time, while all of that is okay, at the same time, there is great power and tremendous relief in being still, in finally shutting up. Because then and there will you know that God is God. That's what Psalm 46 is saying. So I, I, don't, I don't know what's happening in your life. I don't, know, I don't know why it's happening. I just know that God is ultimately your only hope. Ultimately your only hope. Remember that scene, I've referenced it a few times in the Gospels where uh, Jesus is teaching some hard stuff, hard stuff. Things that the people around him weren't understanding. And for a while, he was gathering quite a large crowd. People were flocking to him. And, and as his teaching got harder and harder uh, and not as easily digestible, people started to leave. And on one occasion, people were leaving. They were walking away, going, this isn't what I thought it was. I'm out. And Jesus looked at his 12 disciples and said, are you going to leave too? And Peter looks at him and says, where else are we going to go? I mean, you alone have the words of life. I, I don't understand what you're saying either, Jesus. I just know that there is no other stream. There's no other, where, am I, where else am I going to go? And so when I find myself frustrated with God and angry at God and confused by God and, and hurt by God, abandoned by God, rejected by God, whatever the case may be, when I'm feeling that stuff and I'm tempted to go somewhere else, it dawns on me, where else am I going to go? What are my options here? Where else am I going to go? I mean, am I just going to... Am I going to assume that this whole thing's riding on me and now it's up to me to make everything right and to fix everything and to make sure my life goes in the direction that it needs to go in so that I can experience a pain-free life? I mean, is, is that the other option? Job's already learned that his wife and his friends uh, were no substitute for God. People he thought would be with him come hell or high water, stick with him come hell or high water, be with him in the trenches, well, man, as soon as it started getting hot in the kitchen, they bailed. So Job knows what it feels like to be rejected, to be left in his time of need. So does Jesus. He knows when Hebrews says that we have a great high priest who can sympathize with us in all of our weaknesses and pain, and we go, okay, really? Seriously? I mean, Jesus wasn't married. Uh, I mean, he, he, didn't, he didn't have um, toddlers that he had to deal with. He didn't have crying babies in the middle of the night. Uh, he didn't have to deal with a lot of the stuff we have to deal with. He didn't have to deal with, um, he didn't have to deal with bad traffic on Indian Town Road because of construction that they're doing in the wintertime instead of doing it in the summertime when nobody's here. He didn't have to deal with a whole lot of things. And so we go, what in the world? How can he say, how can he be so audacious as to say that he can understand us? Well, he knows what it feels like to be rejected. He knows what it feels like to be abandoned. He knows what it feels like to not even understand what his father's doing. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, if there is some other way, make it happen. I, I, but nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. I, I don't understand everything I need to understand. You do. He knows what it feels like. He knows what it feels like to die. He knows. Jesus knows. 
Job knew. Job knew what it felt like to be abandoned by people in time of need, to lose. He knew. He knew. And at the end of the day, he's going, where, where else am I going to go? At least he's taking his complaints to God. You know, it's, at least he's expressing his frustration to God. He's taking his grief to God. He's taking his anger to God. And so I, I, don't, I don't know what's happening in your life. I don't know why it's happening. I just know that God is ultimately your only hope. He's ultimately my only hope. It doesn't mean that we will like what he does or doesn't do. It doesn't mean we'll understand what he does or doesn't do. Because his ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts and he's infinite and we're finite and he's big and we're small and he's perfect and we're imperfect and he's holy and we're sinful and all that stuff. He's the creator and we're the creatures. There's just so much about who God is and what God does that we cannot and will not ever know. It's like looking at the ocean from the beach. Um, but I do know this, that he's ultimately our only hope. There is no other stream. I know it may not seem like it right now, but he is your strength. He is your rock. He is your deliverer. It may seem like he's left you, but he hasn't. He's with you in the whirlwind. He's with you. He comes to you. He, he hasn't left you. He, he loves you. And he promises that no matter what, no matter how hard you shake your fists in frustration at what he's doing, no matter how much of a temper tantrum you throw or how much sadness you express or confusion or grief, he's got you. He's got you. And in those moments when it doesn't feel like he's got you, I find myself saying, God, it certainly doesn't feel like you care, and it doesn't really feel right now like you're with me. Help me to believe that you are, because right now I'm feeling abandoned by the best friend I've ever had. Help me. Help me to know that you're here. Just an honest prayer like that has been so helpful to me, just to go, I don't even know if I believe this stuff. I get up and I talk about it every week. I write about it. I spend a majority of my week talking about it with other people, preparing to talk about it on Sunday morning, writing about it in various ways and at various times, and yet I find myself going, do I really believe this stuff? God, I believe it. Help me to believe it more. I believe it and I don't believe it. I, I, I trust you and I don't trust you. I say that I trust you, but then I look at my life and I'm like, man, there's so many things that I really don't trust God with. I'm just a, I'm just a barrel of inconsistencies. I said last week, the only, the only consistency in the exercise of my faith is just how inconsistently I exercise my faith. That's it. I, 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 I believe and I don't believe. I trust and I don't trust. I rebel and I rejoice all at the same time, all the time. And just coming to God and saying, God, this is the mess that I am. I, I want to believe that you're good. I want to believe that you love me. I want to believe that you're there for me, that you haven't left me. But I'm finding it really difficult to believe that right now. Help me to believe it. Help me to believe it. And then just be still. God knows how to make himself known to you. He knows. He's tailored you. He's hardwired you. He knows how to uniquely reach you. Your personality, 
your likes, your dislikes, your unique frustrations, your idiosyncrasies. He knows specifically. You are fearfully and wonderfully made by God, and he knows how to specifically remind you that he's with you. Let's pray together. If you've enjoyed this message, be sure to subscribe to the Sanctuary Podcast. You can find it on all major podcast platforms. Thanks for listening to the Sanctuary Podcast.